Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us with Three Women, Three Ways, for the show that talks about issues of uh, worldwide issues, and also issues that apply to women and men and children who are in uh, violent situations or who are uh, concerned about those who are in uh, less than desirable situations. Today we have, I think, a particularly appropriate topic. This is the time of year that we tend to think about children and how wonderful it is to be a child and, and to have Santa Claus in your life and all of those kind of things. But for many children, we, they don't have that. They live in a state of trauma. And our expert this morning joining us is um, Dr. Stephen Marins. He's uh, the Harris Professor of Child Psychiatry and Professor of Psychiatry at the Child Studies Center at Department of Psychiatry, Yale University School of Medicine. And he has a lot, a lot of credentials. He's worked uh, with the U.S. Attorney General's Office, the National Task Force on Children Exposed to Violence. So he's definitely our expert this morning. Welcome, Dr. Marins. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you, Heather. Thank you. Um, So when we read newspaper stories about domestic violence situations, um, we read about some horrible uh, uh, community event, you know, obviously a school shooting, we think of the children. But what if it's a tornado? What if it's a domestic violence situation where dad sees mom hitting uh, um, dad or vice versa? Um, or lots of lots of arguments and and uh, heated arguments. Is that trauma for the child? Well, I think it's really important to distinguish two things. Number one, that there's a difference between things that are upsetting and things that are traumatic. But if we step back and we think about what do these events, these potentially traumatic events, uh, what do they have in common? Well, what they have in common is that they are the realization of all of our shared worst, uh, nightmare, worst nightmare scenarios. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and if we step back and we think about what do we share as human beings in terms of uh, fears and, and the dangers that are uppermost in our lives, they're going to sound very familiar. They're the loss of our own lives, the loss of the life of someone we love and upon whom we rely, the uh, damage to our bodies the uh, loss of control of the way our minds work, uh, how we think, feel, and act, and the uh, loss of love of ourselves and of someone else that we love. And lastly, uh, loss of control of the world around us in which the touchstones that inform our actions uh, of daily life excuse me, are wiped out uh, in the re- as a result of a man-made or natural disaster. So when we think about, it sounds about, to me like you're describing things that are traumatic to adults as well. Is it absolutely. the same for children, or is it worse yeah. for children? Well, but I want to I want to point out that the distinguishing feature, and what we think about in terms of trauma, is that these events occur with no anticipation, no ability to prepare, and that these are reality events that can that converge with these shared worst-case nightmare scenarios and that when there is the unanticipated experience of danger in which you can't prepare, you can't defend yourself, you can't flee or fight, uh, uh, and there are neurophysiologic dysregulations that result, um, uh, then we are left with an experience of terror and the reality of, of helplessness and loss of control, so that when we think about trauma, we think about a very specific kind of configuration of this convergence between our worst fears and the unanticipated realization of those fears. In terms of adults and kids, um, the, the description of trauma that I just gave applies to both, but because of developmental differences in terms of age, stage of development, cognitive resources, et cetera, the kinds of responses may be similar, but, um, but uh, different presentations in children and adults. 
Okay. Um, this is, I think, going to be a really, really informative show, and I would like you to join us. Um, get to 646-378-0430. That's the number you can call and join in our conversation. 646-378-0430. Well, Dr. Maris, it sounds to me like you've described a perfect scenario for domestic violence um, situations. Um is that the typical um, uh, situation from which you see traumatized children? Or Yes, yes, and I think that it's uh, your audience, when, when we all step back and think about what the domestic violence situation, for example, why that has such potential for being traumatic, traumatically overwhelming, um, everyone will, will, will understand and appreciate why that's the case. So, number one, uh, if you think about that list, there is the threat of, uh, of often in domestic violence situations, uh, the threat of, of real loss of life, and often in domestic violence situations, the threat of, of death is a part of the uh, part of the um, part of part of part of the the, the control mechanism. Itself. Yeah, it, it's used as a control mechanism. It's used as a uh, as a factor of terror. And it works. Um, the mm-hmm. other thing that we see is is that whether it's verbal or physical, um, children see and adults experience a loss of control over over their 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 feelings and their thoughts and their actions. You know, it's a it's a longer way of saying um, people feel crazy. They feel out of control, and they are out of control when they are inflicting uh, both em- emotional and physical harm. On, on another person. Um, and then if one goes down the list, one can see that when it's physical, uh, there is a, uh, a real danger to, uh, to, to the body. Um, and one then also sees the, the horrors involved where there's such a dramatic uh, demonstration of hatred rather than love. If, if we take all of these features and we try to imagine what it's like to be a child, watching one's parents, one's caregivers engage in these activities, we can readily appreciate how much this is a contravention. It is the opposite of what children need from their caregivers. And as adults, it's often hard to remember what it's like to be a kid because in these circumstances, it's often too painful to remember what it's like. And unfortunately, when adults themselves are engaged in perpetrating violence against typically women, um, that uh, the impact on children is the furthest thing from their minds because their own sense of internal control has been lost. When you work with children, do you see a lot of domestic violence situations and does this this appear to be a different type of trauma? Is I guess what I'm saying is when you're traumatized, you're traumatized. Are you traumatized differently under different circumstances? Well, I think what we know, the, the answer to your first question is yes. We Unfortunately, we see a lot of, a, a lot of kids and families uh, in the aftermath of uh, experiences of uh, domestic violence. We have a partnership with, um, with the New Haven Police Department uh, this is a partnership that's developed over the last couple of decades that's been replicated in other communities where um, uh, we get many of our uh, referrals and work closely with law enforcement because law enforcement are typically the the first responders to situations that are of uh, domestic violence that are identified. So in answer to the second question, um, the uh, the magnitude of Traumatic overstimulation is greatest, we know, across the board when the, uh, the, the victim of violence and the perpetrator of violence are people with whom one is closest. Again, these are uh, adults are people upon whom children rely for um, uh, all sorts of things, not only physical care and comfort, but part of that comfort comes from the reassuring experience that someone is in control, that there are uh, models of, uh, of, uh, of civil behavior, of love, of concern, and also of predictability. 
And often what we see in the situation of domestic violence, and unfortunately women who are the victims of domestic violence know this all too well, and so do perpetrators. Those situations where there's an explosive outburst of violence or abuse, and then, you know, the perpetrator feels terrible, the victim is hopeful that this will be uh, not be repeated, and each time it is as if it's happening anew uh, with the background concerns and limitations, uh, you know, hovering just beyond the surface of consciousness and worry that it's going to happen again. For, well, so, that, I always call that the walking on eggshells. Absolutely. And, uh, and the, the, the problem is, is that for both adults and kids, when it's understandable that the wish that it will never happen again is, uh, is, is to be human. Um, but each time these explosions occur, uh, it is uh, more than our minds and bodies can literally tolerate and integrate, and it's that level of overstimulation, of, of, of shock, uh, that uh, dysregulates how we think and act and feel both in the short term and when it's not identified and treated can have an impact over a lifetime. You know, Doctor, I I rarely talk about my own life experiences on this show, but I have a question that does pertain to my life experience. My mother was, um, she was mentally ill. Uh, Later on in life she was diagnosed, but she was always going to leave. She and my father would have these big blow-ups. He would go off into the garage and stay there and she would start packing a suitcase and this would happen with regularity and i i'm not exaggerating here my very first memory is standing in a room between their bedroom and the and the garage and my older sister would go back and forth frantically between the two of them you know mommy don't leave daddy don't leave you know don't go mommy don't leave and i remember standing off to the side thinking hmm I've heard this before. She's not going to go, and he's not going to go kill himself. Um, and and that's how I operated my childhood. It's like, oh, here we go again, and no, it's not going to happen. Does that make a, you know, why that reaction? I mean, my sister was absolutely traumatized by the whole thing, and I just kind of removed myself from it. So do children do this is that also a symptom of trauma I, I don't i never have understood my reaction to that well i think it's a it's a painful and poignant example that you give us um and i mean that uh you know you imagine that scenario for all of us um both the person you're interviewing and your audience imagine being those two children just for a moment imagine what that might be like and how hard it is to actually pay attention to our own imagination as we, you know, put ourselves in yours and your sister's shoes. Um, and I, it's an important comment, I think, to, that I wanted to make because it's, uh, it's, um, it's one of the reasons why it's so hard to, to provide the ongoing attention that's needed to these issues because they're so hard to look at. But I think your, your underlying question is a wonderful one, and it highlights uh, the, the variables, the factors that are involved that make different children's experiences of the same situation so different um, so that we know that, that age and, and phase of development uh, vary enormously in terms of kids' reactions to the same scene. We know that the uh, the kind of buffering that children are able to get from each other as siblings uh, has an enormous impact. Uh, we know that, that everybody in a family has different roles that develop over time and that cognitive resources matter, et cetera. So while I can't fully answer the question because I don't know you or your sister well enough to know, um, <laughs> But, but I can tell you that it's not uncommon for these experiences to be very different among siblings and to say that in, in, in some ways you were able to um, utilize your experience and your memory as a touchstone for reassurance that you could go to internally. Uh, and um, and uh, lucky you. 
<laughs> so that's just that was just me. Um, uh, there's no common um, thread amongst children who are able to do that. I, I, I guess what I'm thinking is, is if if we can identify something that can help a child remove themselves from that situation, at least you know, uh, um, in their minds a little bit, um, we could teach well, children that as, as a protection, couldn't we? I, I think so, but I think there's a far more fundamental. Uh, uh, a far more fundamental message that comes out of our experience in working with, uh, with, with kids and adults in the domestic violence situation. And that is the sine qua non of both the traumatic experience uh, of loss of control is the same as the behavior that leads up to that experience. That is the loss of control of behavior. And that first and foremost, when we think about mental health, behavioral health, the necessity and requirement of safety is absolutely essential, whether we're talking about children being fed adequately, being kept warm, being kept emotionally safe through reliable and predictable patterns of interaction. The same needs to be said when the loss of safety is because of violent, uh, violent behavior. And so I, I'm saying this because I think before we get to teaching children about, you know, uh, remembering what the outcome is going to be, um, the first issue that we need to be attending to that many communities around the country have been trying to focus on is ensuring that there are better responses to domestic violence uh, in order for external controls to be put in place. And the problem is that in a traumatic situation, um, for many, again, it's a subjective experience, but for many, even if the reality is that this has happened multiple times and mommy hasn't left and daddy hasn't killed mommy, daddy hasn't killed himself, at the moment that they're confronted with it again, our brains are often not able to function in a way that allows us to grab hold of those facts and those memories and then use facts and memories as a way of turning down the volume on our emotional responses. This is the vicious cycle of traumatic dysregulation that poses such a challenge to recovery and can lead to, again, lifelong alterations as a result. Hmm. We have a caller, Dr. Burns. I'd like to see what uh, he or she has to say. Um, caller, are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay. First name, please, and where you're from? Um, I'm from. Um, I'm Mary, and I'm from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Oh, hi, Mary. Hi. <laughs> it's a pleasure uh, I, to talk to you, Heather. <laughs> um, Dr. Marins, I know Mary. Um, Personally, she's uh, uh, helping me with my my school. I guess that'd be a good way to say it, Mary. And um, she well, you can is ask very introduce me if, if you want to, um, or I can. I said you can introduce my full credentials if you want to. Oh, okay. Well, well, uh, Mary is actually my committee chair for my PhD dissertation, Dr. Marins. So uh, she's familiar with a lot of the things and the topics that we do on this program. And this one, I think, really spoke to her. Mary, do you have a question or a comment for us? Um, actually, uh, gosh, I don't want to take over the um, phone call, um, but it's wonderful to meet you, um, Dr. Marin. And I uh, have been uh, following a lot of your work because this is an area of um, special interest of mine. And, and as you know, um, you know, a lot of us go into this work um, based on personal experiences in our childhood. Um, and I uh, wanted to respond to Heather about your experience, um, the siblings having different ex experiences. And there's eight kids in my family, and all eight of us have different uh, memories and realities, will, really, with um, uh, what actually happened in the home because of the different roles and possibly the different um, uh, places of order. Um, and um, it's, it's just it's really, it's just interesting to hear each other's stories and, and um, the severity of the impact of, you know, the witnessing 
and being involved in trying to prevent somebody from being hurt or killed um, in our case. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the domestic violence spreads and it becomes domestic rather than in, interpersonal violence. Um, what I found um, in a lot of families, it's not just um, interpersonal violence. It's actually um, then goes, because it's a modeling problem, uh, Older siblings who are dating often can be involved in a violent relationship, which also affects uh, other children, younger children in the family. And I'm just wondering when um, you said that, you know, one in four children are probably witnesses to domestic violence in the family, um, does it, that number would probably be more if you take into account the sibling violence, um, the dating violence that they're witnessing, and the sibling violence that is occurring um, as a result of the violence between the parents. And I was just wondering if you had looked at that at all when you um, tried to get a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Well, there, uh, Mary, first of all, thank you for your comments, and I, I also appreciate both you and Heather reminding all of us, um, it's such a great, very real, down-to-earth way of reminding all of us that, um, you know, human beings are incredibly complicated. And, yeah. uh, and the, the, the different factors that make each of us different, uh, you know, within certain parameters, um, it's very real. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm underlining that because too often, uh, especially when we're dealing with very disturbing circumstances, there is an understandable wish to um, to come up with um, you know one size fits all answers, which right. in in a way then deprives individuals of the reality of their very individual experiences. So I, I, want, I just wanted to underline that and to express my appreciation to both of you for reminding all of us of that fact. Um, there are studies that have looked at the impact of domestic violence on children as compared to who've, been, who've grown up in homes in which domestic violence occurs and versus kids who haven't. And there are two things that are, are uh, there are a number of studies that look at the links between early exposure to domestic violence and um, a, a greater likelihood of very difficult outcomes in terms of drug and alcohol abuse, uh, right, depressive right. and anxiety disorders, et cetera. One of the studies that really stands out for me is, the, is a study that was done that did this comparison and demonstrated that kids who had grown up in homes involving where they'd been exposed to domestic violence were 158% more likely in their adolescent and adult years to be victims of, uh, of, of violence down the road. And that what's even perhaps just as impressive is that for boys, the increased rate uh, is 115%, and not surprisingly, um, for girls, 229% more likely to be subsequent victims of violent behavior. Um, I think that the, uh, the, the notion of modeling is part of the picture, Right. But I think that the subjective experience leads to real alterations for some where there are not enough protective factors, which we can talk about, but leads to many kids having their own abilities to regulate their feelings, regulate their aggression that inter interferes with optimal relationships, et cetera, um, uh, and, and also the very common experience of turning from being a terrified passive uh, victim and witness to becoming a perpetrator uh, to be some of the highlights of the longer-term consequences. Exactly. However, the good, the good news is that there are protective factors, and those are the ones that we need to be taking advantage of as we advance our approaches to intervening in such situations. Right, and most of the time... Um, the protective factors um, are adults outside of the family, um, you know, who who are, um, um, may be family related, like an aunt or an uncle. Um, but, but there's also neighbors, 
um, and I find I have I have found in my experience, uh, I've been um, looking at this issue, um, not counting my childhood <laughs> for um, academically um, for over 20 years, and um, so we're looking at some of those issues of the protective factors. Um, both inside the family, like an older sibling pr- protecting the younger siblings, or um, even you know the middle kids protecting um, the younger exactly. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, and and the in, extra- in their, in, sorry. No, no, no. And what you just said, in terms of their, you know, we tend to divide the uh, protective factors into both event factors and individual factors, and obviously some of the things that that I had mentioned before about you know, predisposing vulnerabilities prior to events, et cetera, all those matter. But uh, what you were describing falls into uh, two major categories that predict good or bad outcomes, regardless of whether the traumatic event is exposure to domestic violence or any number of other ways in which our worst fears converge unanticipated uh, in an unanticipated way with, with, with reality. And those two factors are... Um, the uh, failure uh, to identify those kids who've been impacted mm-hmm. and the, failure, the presence or absence of adequate social supports and communication. Exactly. So I think those are really important uh, starting points in which we can then begin to take advantage of what we've learned about interventions that really address those protective factors uh, once we're recognizing the high risk that kids are uh, exposed to in these situations. Mary, Um, you had mentioned a figure of uh, one in four uh, children um, who have potentially um, potential trauma. uh, um, Or have witnessed, yeah. Have witnessed, yeah. I actually have the National Child Traumatic Stress Network fact sheet, and the figure that they use is, uh, well, let me see here, um, 30, uh, by, uh, by the age of 12 to 17-year-olds, 17% reported an actual physical assault that they experienced, and 39% reported witnessing violence. Yeah. So that's a much yeah. higher figure. A much higher. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't, um, you know, two or even three out of four, um, you know, because our generation, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but let's just say that uh, <laughs> I grew up watching Gilligan's Island after school, okay? Um, and, <laughs> they were reruns. They were reruns. Uh, yeah. yeah well, well, no, not really, but. Anyway, um, you know, that was, it was totally um, hidden and unspoken about. And, um, and so the reporting of it um, is, is not there. And so I, I believe that the rates are, are much higher. But um, if I could, could I, I don't want to, you know, monopolize the, the phones, but one more um, question I had for Dr. Behrens is your Two, the same point that you've mentioned twice now, which is external resources. Yeah. Um, what what I'm trying to do with a student of mine is to look at trying to help um, um, policymakers um, that exp- witnessing domestic violence is this is basically um, child abuse and neglect. Um, and is equivalent or could be equivalent to that. Um, and not the mother's fault or whoever the, the victim is of, of the violence, but just in those circumstances. So it's actually the perpetrator's um, accountability that what is happening to the child who is witnessing that violence is equivalent to child abuse and neglect. And if that assumption is, just take that assumption for a moment, then those children who witness domestic violence are, um, um, they should be provided services um, to address, um, to intervene with the um, PTSD or whatever other um, negative impact they're experiencing. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because domestic violence agencies that we've 
contacted about this idea to explore it are freaking out, um, saying that that people are going to blame the victim right away. Or yeah, the victim, the mom, usually right away, saying that it's her fault. Um, she'll be the one that's prosecuted instead of the perpetrator. And um, they're also afraid of the increased, you know, workload. Frankly, um, if if we were Mary, successful the, the, in trying to get. Uh, the fact that they're, you know, they're saying about this, the victim being blamed, there are many documented cases of uh, women victims being oh. arrested for oh, failure to protect their children. Uh, that's the oh, terminology right. they use, failure to protect right. the child, when well, she, in fact, is being victimized that. herself. Yeah. But, yeah, but, but I think to... that this, this is, a, um, unfortunately, uh, this is a great example of the ways in which the complexity of, of what actually occurs in real life gets um, uh, narrowed at the expense of the people we're most concerned about. Exactly. So let me, let, me, let me give you an example of where Child Protective Services folks are in a real, real dilemma. Um, and so is law enforcement. So, but most importantly, uh, typically women, who are typically the victims of uh, domestic abuse, uh, and their children. And here's the situation where... Uh, there's a terrible um, situation in which the police have been called and assault charges are um, uh, where there's been assault and assault charges or risk of injury charges are uh, brought against the, uh, the perpetrator. Traitor is, is jailed, typically briefly, and, mm. um, you know, they're, they're maybe they're adjudicated to some sort of, again, one-size-fits-all approach of anger management or whatever. And, and, and yet the victim has a uh, protective order, has gotten good assistance from court-based domestic violence services, et cetera. Um, but the, the perpetrator gets out of jail and uh, winds up uh, violating the protective order. Right. And, um, and, and, uh, and, and the, uh, the victim takes the perpetrator back into the home. Right. Now, those of us who have actually worked with folks in this situation know that there are multiple factors that lead to that, that set of circumstances. Oh, the absolutely. Easiest thing, the easiest thing would be to say, well, this victim, you know, why would she let him back in? Well, oh, you know, there, there are lots of reasons, including right. e- economics and uh, the terror of, uh, of the, the centerpiece of the relationship, et cetera, et cetera, right. including including the wish that this time things will get better. Having said that, having said that, these circumstances and the ongoing nature of the circumstances put children at an increased level of risk. Right. And what we've not done, and so there are concerns about how we categorize this exposure um, and what are the parameters, but more important, what are the resources that are actually going to be available so that, for example, there's better coordination between law enforcement, court-based services, community-based services uh, that actually allow for a platform upon which women victims can uh, be supported in the decisions they make and therefore be in a better position to protect their children. This right. kind of approach is not being taken uh, in in uh, in too many places around the country, and I would refer you to the uh, the the report of the Attorney General's Task Force on Children Exposed to Violence, and it's a long report, but the executive summary does a nice job of of looking at this particular area as one of the areas in which we can capitalize on what we've learned about what's most successful in protecting and helping women protect. Uh, their own children and getting them the support and services that are needed. Well, that's excellent, and um, maybe that's my next area. But listen, I, I, I want other callers to be able to call in. Um, Heather, it was a pleasure. Um, well, thank probably you for calling, Mary. I think you added a lot. Mm-hmm. And Mary, uh, Mary, you and I <laughs> need to have a talk outside the show. I think. Well, Mary. It's okay. Nice to meet you. See you. That sounds good. Right, bye bye. Okay, bye, Mary. Um, you know, Doctor, when Mary was talking about the underreporting or under uh, acknowledgement of um, potential trauma uh, situations for children, 
it occurred to me that if anybody had told me that I was in a potential trauma situation, I would have just laughed in their faces. Um, I, I would have said, well, you know, nobody's hitting me, um, and, you know, it, it's just not. I'm wondering how many young people realize that they're in that kind of a situation. How many people would really seek out these services for their children? Um, is that a, a, a glitch in, in any kind of discussion about children and potential trauma? I think it's, a, it's such a wonderful uh, question, um, and it speaks to the kinds of adaptations that people make uh, to circumstances over which they have no control. And uh, you and many others who might be listening uh, in um, who've experienced uh, domestic violence or other circumstances that continue or continued for a long period of their lives, uh, you know, if you talk to kids who live in neighborhoods where they hear gunfire all the time, um, they will uh, often, depending on their age, they will not tell you about how scared they are. They'll tell you about how normal it is. Um, or if, uh, you know, you, you talk to kids who live in situations where domestic violence has been a regular staple of their growing up, um, you will hear them talk about, uh, you know, the, that that's just the way things were or, um, you know, you'll hear a lot of responses. What they can't know, and often one of the reasons why people don't reach out and, and seek help, is that the adaptations that occur happen quietly and uh, the problem is that they come at a cost. And too often, those people who may be able to observe it aren't aware of the connection. I'll give you a quick example. Um, the kid who's able to be tough and stoic in the face of horrors at home or in their neighborhoods, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe the same kids who in, in classrooms are not able to pay attention or who... Uh, on the one hand, may withdraw socially as well as underperform academically, or they may be the kids who become more rambunctious, more troublesome and disruptive in classrooms. And the problem is is that too often these kids, uh, the, the reasons for either of these scenarios uh, isn't looked at carefully. And it's like anything else uh, in being a human being when we, when our behavior and our adaptations, uh, we don't think of our behavior as adaptations. We just think, well, that's the way I am. That's the way it is. And so part of the importance of this kind of the radio show you're doing and, and so much more that is need to be, needed to be done does have to do with uh, public, increasing public awareness because this is not simply shining a light on problems that, Develop because of untreated, unrecognized traumatic experience, but it's also about being able to blend that increased visibility with the increased visibility of the ways that have been developed to actually help people recover and meet their, potent, their optimal potential and uh, free themselves from adaptations that often persist silently but at a high cost to the individuals who have made them. We've talked a lot about family violence because that's a huge chunk of the uh, potential trauma situations that children are in. But there are also other uh, ways that children can be traumatized and ways outside the family. Uh, we mentioned a little bit about you know, uh, school shootings, which we're all familiar with and which we would all expect children to have a potential for trauma from those. But there's also things like weather and... Uh, um, war and all of these other things that children are often exposed to. Tell us, please, Doctor, the other kinds of situations that typically can be a, trauma, a potential trauma situation for children. Sure. Well, um, the, uh, the, again, the, one of the, the factors that we always look at is not just what you see and hear, but um, who's involved in what you see and hear. And so obviously the most uh, disruptive and traumatic experiences of witnessing involves 
uh, situations in which you know the people who are both perpetrators and and uh, and victims, and that then is combined with um, what is it that you're seeing, and uh, the idea of of children of any age being exposed to the carnage that is visited upon victims by by human perpetrators is. Uh, can be overwhelmingly traumatic uh, because of not only what they see, but the demonstration of this absolute loss of control and predictability in the behavior of others and the inability of the broader world to protect them from these kinds of situations. Um, and again, one of the things that's so important is identifying and, and mapping our responses from what we know about protective factors. And whether it's a uh, traumatization that occurs in the wake of uh, a man-made disaster like a school shooting or terrorist attacks like, or uh, natural uh, disasters of, of weather and fire, et cetera, um, the notion of being able to identify and recognizing, recognize when there are symptoms of traumatic dysregulation becomes of really paramount importance because without the recognition that children are having reactions, how can the adults then even have a platform from which to help them recover? The second part is if we map on from what we understand about uh, traumatic dysregulation occurring because of the unanticipated uh, nature and the disruption of the routines of expectation and daily life, then it helps us to understand how important reinstating routines of daily life are. In the natural disaster arena, we've seen this in both successful responses and very unsuccessful responses. In the uh, wake of the uh, earthquakes in Turkey, in the mid-90s, the uh, Turkish government and the Israeli government worked together, um, and this required pulling together not just mental health people, but mental health people were working with the military and government officials, et cetera, in establishing um, settlement, resettlement camps that actually had an enormous amount of structure built in for both adults and children. And what was demonstrated was that as a result of building in that structure from the get-go, having an array of, of educational, medical, employment, financial services all co-located, and having routines and structured activities, et cetera, decreased the uh, deleterious outcomes and long-term post-traumatic symptoms that have been demonstrated in other natural disaster situations that were similar. Unfortunately, uh, a, uh, an example in which that integration and broader view approach to behavioral health responses in the wake of traumatic events is demonstrated in what happened after uh, Hurricane Katrina for too many people. So in one, in one, uh, for one group of displaced folks from the Ninth Ward who were relocated to a, a field of campers in Baton Rouge, about 500 families, um, there, was, there, was, there was very little, if any, routinization of activity, planning, et cetera, that went on in that setting in which people remained for up to 18 months and some over. And surprise, surprise, there were very much higher rates of depression and, in, in adults and other difficulties and an over-representation of disciplinary uh, difficulties uh, academic failure, et cetera, amongst the kids who are there. So we can take what we know about risk factors and protective factors and actually move in the direction of developing strategies for intervening that decrease the likelihood of long-term effects and actually can reduce the intensity of immediate suffering, which is why we've developed our early intervention that aims to strengthen families in the wake of, uh, of uh, traumatic events. Okay, you say our, why, why, how we have I'm sorry, strived. I, uh, Can you explain? Yeah, specifically um, our, our work with uh, law enforcement and others in New Haven and around the country um, over the last over two decades in which we're on call 24-7 with the police department. We respond both 
immediately to scenes with our partners having undergone cross-training between mental health professionals and law enforcement, and uh, we've learned a great deal about how to intervene to help stabilize families, kids, and adults in the immediate aftermath of potentially traumatic events. And then what we do is we follow up in a variety of ways, including uh, follow-up visits that are conducted by law enforcement and mental health folks in cases involving domestic violence and other uh, potentially traumatic situations in which um, safety plans are reviewed, uh, mental health status is reviewed, and identifying a range of services that would support recovery are identified. Out of that, uh, there have been for years a number of existing longer-term uh, treatments, evidence-based treatments that have been developed for uh, dealing with those kids and adults who are unable to recover from these events and develop PTSD and related disorders. And those longer-term treatments, such as trauma-focused CBT, cognitive behavioral treatment, or cognitive processing treatment for adults, the TFCBT is for children and families, those have been enormously successful in helping kids recover once uh, long-term difficulties have become well-established. But what was missing was an early intervention that could both decrease the suffering that occurs in the days and six to eight weeks after events and also might lead to the prevention of the development of longer-term disorders while also assessing who's going to need longer-term treatment. And out of that recognition and out of our experience, we developed what's called the Child and Family Traumatic Stress Intervention at Yale and we've been using that over the last years and are now um, uh, disseminating, providing training and implementation in uh, communities around the country. Um, and this intervention, as compared to standard approaches to care, has been demonstrated to decrease the likelihood of the development of PTSD in 60, uh, by 65% as compared to the control group and 73 per, a reduction by 73% of partial PTSD, which includes more general anxiety and depressive uh, problems that follow in the wake of unresolved traumatic experience. These Doctor, kinds you mentioned, of PT Sorry. You mentioned PTSD uh, as an outcome. Are there other um, uh, potential outcomes, uh, negative sure. outcomes? For, for Could you explain what they are? I think most people are familiar with PTSD. Right. Um, well, again, if you know, this is uh, it, it doesn't require one to be a, a you know a professor to know these things. It, sometimes it it requires us to slow down and 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 just think about our own experiences, both in our memories as kids and as adults. When we're at our most upset, and to use my word, dysregulated, not my word, but the fancier term of when when we're we're all stirred up. Guess what? We can't concentrate on our work as well. Uh, we're, we have a shorter fuse in, our, uh, in, in terms of our relationships often with the people we're closest to. We may have more of a tendency to withdraw. We have more of a tendency to, to feel um, that, that the helplessness that we feel um, uh, you know, leads to um, moving away from activities that are typical in, in normal life. They may increase our anxiety, and, and for adults, and unfortunately for adolescents as well, um, drinking and, and drugs uh, use may increase as a way of self-medicating. So the immediate impact in this early phase, and many of these symptoms of anxiety, increased anxiety, arousal, depression, those kinds of sleep disruptions, eating problems, et cetera, they're normal, but they're not nice, and they may come at a cost particularly for developing kids. Because if you have a period of four to six weeks or eight weeks where that's the level of suffering you're experiencing, that may have consequence in terms of how you uh, are able to fall behind in academic uh, pursuits, relationships, et cetera, as well as feelings about yourself. Over the long well, term, some of these, these are long. These can become long-term problems, not just immediate problems. Is that, that right? That, that, that's, that's exactly right. And what we see is a cascade effect. So that when these, uh, when the the dysregulation, the traumatic dysregulation, it's important to distinguish 
between our de- definition of trauma as opposed to the development of PTSD so that people can recover from trauma without developing disorders. PTSD is one of the outcomes of exposure to traumatic events. But, you know, the development of of ways of being as entire personalities can also result from the unrecognized, untreated, and unstopped exposure so that at each phase of development, there can be sacrifices that are the costs to um, normal capacities for all the equipment we use to move ahead successfully. And that has an outcome in terms of who we develop into as people. In terms of frank uh, you know, disorders, as it were, PTSD is not the only one, but uh, we see depression, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, uh, problems in relationships. We can see personality disorders that lead to real limitations in terms of the range of activities, the range of living, and the achievements in both work and love that uh, can last a lifetime when when they go unrecognized and and, uh, where there's no help for recovery. Um, Or no help available for recovery. Yeah. Well, and uh, going back to my uh, observation that I would suspect a lot of people, um, especially young people, don't recognize that if they're having some of these issues, it may be the result of some childhood trauma. So, That's absolutely right. But, but, but it's also the case, and we wouldn't expect them to, right? I mean, in many right. ways, we wouldn't expect them to unless we increase the level of public discourse and public awareness in the same way that we did with seatbelts. Now, mm-hmm. there's still adolescents who may not wear seatbelts, but you know what? When you don't, other people notice. We have to get to the point when when people, whether they're kids or adults, are suffering the consequences of uh, exposure to terrifying, overwhelming events that were out of their control, that there are other places, both institutionally and in terms of friends, neighbors, etc., who recognize that the impact is well-established and real, whether it's in schools, police departments, courts, child welfare agencies, or amongst us as human beings, um, the past president of the American Psychiatric Association, as well as the Attorney, uh, Attorney General Eric Holder's Task Force on Children Exposed to Violence, identified uh, trauma associated with, children, with, with exposure to violence as the number one public health care crisis in America that is uh, intervenable and preventable. Doctor, we talked a little bit about um, the children who are going through this. What, can children do anything about this? I mean, if they, can, can they go to a relative? Can they go to school and talk to the counselor there? Where, where is it safe for a child to go to seek some help or at least a, a, a shoulder to lean on during a situation like this? Well, I think as adults we need to um, use our own experience as reference points. You know, um, uh, the, the short answer is you go to the people who have established themselves as figures of reliability and basic trust. One of the ingredients that makes it so hard for kids and adults to turn to others when they are hurting the most, and we all know this experience, is uh, one of the hardest times to turn to others for support when we may need it the most are times where the experience of needing it the most makes us feel small, babyish, and infantile. And kids aren't the only ones who resist those feelings, as every adult listening to this program knows. It is really, really hard because sometimes we experience the idea of turning for help as a confirmation that we are inadequate, incompetent, and... uh, uh, that we failed somehow. Again, being able to recognize and publicize the, uh, the, that what we share as human beings are both strengths and vulnerabilities, that there are real changes that happen in our bodies and our minds, the way we operate as a almost expectable, predictable outcome of certain kinds of experience 
is a way of perhaps elevating the discussion, shining the light and illuminating this function so that one day we may be able to imagine that when certain events happen, the response from everyone, both agencies and communities and individuals alike, would be, oh, my goodness, I've got the flu. That's why I'm shivering and shaking. This is what I need to do. No. I, you mentioned the, um, where, you know, how a child can seek assistance. Isn't there also an issue of safety? I, I, I'm thinking back to um, little Heather. I'm not sure I would have told anybody because I would have been afraid that they would do something to my parents. Right. Well, this goes back to um, reshaping and, and rethinking um, what is required. It's one of the reasons that we've learned so much from working with our law enforcement colleagues that the role of law enforcement uh, is not simply uh, one of arrest, but actually when, 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 uh, when well-trained uh, using traditional, the traditional role of law enforcement as figures of benign authority, um, and this is just one example, but the opportunity for law enforcement officers to be sensitive and aware of the needs of children as well as the adults involved, in this case, in domestic violence, um, uh, can alter and change the nature of the intervention approaches. The same is true whether we're working in emergency departments, in hospitals, in primary health care settings, and in schools. The role of identifying kids and thinking about the kinds of partnerships that are required in order to address the risk factors these events raise uh, actually has been demonstrated to be enormously effective. And right now, for example, uh, our group is working at, at Yale is working with um, our partners at the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the Justice Department, the U.S. Justice Department, and our colleagues in Charlotte, North Carolina, where they're also doing this law enforcement and health partnership around trauma. We're developing a curriculum that will go nationally for law enforcement agencies around the country to help officers take what has been learned about ways in which they can be enormously effective in putting the first building blocks down for restabilization and support following exposure to traumatic events. And this is one amongst many activities that have been developed over the last couple of decades uh, in part through SAMHSA's work and the National Child Traumatic Stress Network work, et cetera. But we are a far cry away from applying what has been learned about what can be effective in decreasing the deleterious impact of traumatic experience. Uh, and uh, we're a long way away from applying what we've learned so that uh, every child, every family, every community in this country can benefit. We have work to do. Yes, I think we do. Doctor, if somebody wants to learn more about this topic, um, would you, where would you suggest they, they turn to? Well, I think that in, in there, there's, a, there's a lot of information out there, and I think that uh, certainly in terms of um, uh, one, one resource is the uh, National Child Traumatic Stress Network, and the, uh, the uh, uh, email, the web address is uh, nctsn.org. And, and I must say, uh, I got a lot of information for the show from that from their website. Right? And, and that information has been contributed by folks like us and others around the country who've been involved in this work and involved in the network since its inception. And the other organization is the National uh, National PTSD Center, um, okay. and uh, this is uh, part of. Uh, this focuses on adults and is very involved in the VA system. Um, Doctor, it has another... been a delight having you on our show. I always end the show with a quote, and the quote that I'm using today is from John W. Whitehead, the founder of the Rutherford Institute. Children are the living messages we send to a time we will not see. So I think it's crucial for us to understand that the message that we want to send to that time we don't see is a good message and a message that we cared about our children and uh, made sure that there were resources and things available for those kids. It's been a great show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Marins. And please join us next week. And uh, we are Three Women, Three Ways. Thank you.